Hi, this is Michelle Lastly with Balance Shared, a space where I truly believe we are better together. My guest today is Farah Fancy. She uses the pronoun she, her, hers. Farah is a shift disturber, cultural stripper, artist doula, fire starter, and warrior based in Montreal, Canada, whose holistic approach fuses the arts, therapeutic techniques, and ethnography for leaders and influencers to reduce shame and improve self-worth and relevance. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. But before we start, I wanted to take a moment to honor that we are, wherever we're listening from, that you're likely located on traditional and unceded territory of the traditional custodians of the land and the water. So it's our collective responsibility to show not only respect for Aboriginal peoples and our ancestors, but also to inform and educate ourselves so that the relationship between Aboriginal peoples and others finds its way to reconciliation. So I'm gonna do my best today to frame this talk knowing that context. So huge thank you once again for having me. Oh, you are welcome. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that honoring of the land. I grew up in Michigan and I live now in Portland, Oregon. And there are so many tribes around us and different pronunciations and whatnot. And we have a lot of atonement work to do as a culture for all of these borrowed things, these stolen things. And I appreciate very much and I'm so grateful that you brought that to our awareness. And so thank you. Yeah, well, that conversation about cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation is a huge conversation that needs to happen. Yes. So it's good. we're starting the process. Yes, yes. So you have a story for us today. I do. I wanted to tell you a little bit about what I'm working on and how that ended up happening. Because I've been listening to your podcast and I see some of your audience members and what they're kind of listening to and what they're kind of interested in. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about me because here I am in Canada, maybe you don't know who I am. So for the past 25 years, I've been working as an artist, a manager, producer, program designer, mainly with organizations and institutions and communities. But like you said in the beginning, I've always used the arts and creativity as a tool to resolve structural problems and foster economic development, cultural understanding and innovation. But through this, I've had the privilege of facilitating programs and workshops for over 10,000 people. I've produced 30 performances, I've created six community public workshops and projects for social change, and I co-founded the Dance Movement Therapy Association in Canada. But then something happened. I do have two to two beautiful girls, and I'm grateful for all that I have in my life. But four years ago, I was confronted with a life challenge. So my husband and I divorced after being together for 23 years. As you know, <laughs> change is hard. A lot of us have passed through a situation with the context that we were living in during COVID. So you know that change and moving out of normalcy is difficult. And I was confronted with that before. So my life became challenged because I was thrown a curveball. I was already going through this process of dividing up years of life together, custody, friends choosing sides, and at the same time maintaining a presence for kids and working and starting a new life path. And it was very isolating. So one day I went into an office because I had to do some board work there and there was nobody there and it was kind of surreal and everything on the floor seemed deserted also. 
But being me, as an older woman, uh, before I left, I grabbed the bathroom key <laughs> and walked down the hall and went in. Um, but when I got out of the stall, there was a man that I didn't know who was waiting for me. So I won't go into the details, but let's just say there was a huge physical struggle. And I found myself unable to move after it happened. I'd been drugged and I was stunned after what had just occurred. So afterwards, I had no choice but to pick myself up. And with all that I had and all that I learned and all that I'd gained through all the values that I have and all of the learning that I had, I had to keep going because I had no choice. Because an artist, or as an artist, it's basically our job to offer a sanctuary of beauty to an ugly world. So I had to keep going as a mom. I had to keep working. I had to be there for my friends, or I was there for my friends, my family, and all those people I came in contact with, whether it be through work or otherwise. And I would say I was probably floating through, maybe on autopilot. So I was still getting stuff done. And I had to keep going. I had to keep moving forward because like you said, I'm a warrior after all. I have no choice. But then last year, I was lucky enough to spend some time with the Bri Bri tribe in southern Costa Rica. Have you been to Costa Rica before? No, I have not. It's a beautiful place and everybody there is so amazing. So I've always enjoyed spending time absorbing anything that elders will offer to me from various communities. And so for those of you who know what it's like to be with an elder, you know it's better just to sit and listen and just soak up what they offer to you instead of ask a bunch of questions. But in this case, I was given the option to ask any question I wanted. But of course, I was mindful and respectful that shouldn't overdo it. So being a mom, of course, I was interested in the ways that they were raising their kids to be proud Indigenous people. And I spent a lot of time at the house of one of the elders in particular. And I noticed that he was very strict with his grandchildren about learning respect. And he insisted that they always said their please and their thank yous. But I asked him in Spanish, whenever your granddaughter asks for water, why don't you ask her to say please and thank you? And he said to me that that's simple. There are three things as a human being that we have a right to. So we don't have to ask for them. So water is one, and that made sense to me because we chatted that it's sad that there's many places in the world that don't have access to clean water. People have to travel long distances to get water, et cetera, et cetera. That made sense. The second one that he told me was fire. Fire, also very logical for cooking. And we joked up here in Canada that we also need it for warmth. And he was <laughs> laughing that they don't have that same problem in Costa Rica, <laughs> like we do here. <laughs> and then he told me the third thing was chilies. Do you get that one? As in the peppers? Yes, chili peppers. Oh, fascinating. Can you see it? I cannot. <laughs> he had me perplexed. I didn't really get it all. And he showed me that on his dining table, and he told me that in each of the households in the Bribri community had a little container of chilies. So that confused me even more because I knew that his family didn't like eating spicy food. Because me being as a Pakistani, he was asking me about spices. He was really curious about my, my culture and my heritage, religion, etc., etc. But then he told me that he said it's a reminder that each of us has our own sabor. 
Do you know what sabor is? I do not. I do not. Sabor is flavor. So what he meant was that each of us have our own personal flavor, like our uniqueness, our identity. And it's something that we don't need to ask for permission to be who we are. We don't need to apologize for it. And so when he told me that, that hit me like a waterfall. It was like I realized that all of the experiences that I had gained until that moment, all of that work that I'd been doing had come to this point. And I didn't need to work anymore with just one single organization or multiple organizations and institutions or communities to promote their mission and mandate. I will continue to do that, but I also have to work to touch as many people as I can. So now as an international public speaker, and also I'm the director of an organization called the Grupo Herencias, I focus on promoting core values, identity and empathy so that we can foster more respect and inclusion and justice. And what I do is I commit to shifting mindsets, which is where that whole shift disturber thing comes from so that we can move away from the ingrained colonized behaviors that we have and we can start to become comfortable with being uncomfortable so that we can gain more personal resiliency so we can stand out and stand up and be proud of the fact that we're flossom have you heard of the term flossom before only flotsam and jetsam so a little different so no also go with no <laughs> So flossom is the fact that we are all flawed, but at the same time, we're awesome. So where the term flossom comes from. <laughs> so that's kind of why I act as an artist doula now. So do you mind if I tell you a little bit more about that? I would love to know what an artist doula is because I know two types of doulas in my world. I know <laughs> birth doulas. And mm -hmm. so they, they, and I, I don't know them very well, right? I know this beautiful concept exists. So this is what I idolize or idealize as a birth doula. That person who's going to be with me, should I choose to have another child, right? And they would be with me advocating for my rights and helping to support me and have all this beautiful magical wisdom and, and things to be able to support me while I'm birthing a child. And then the second doula that I know is related to that. She, this woman actually started as a birth doula, but then found that her calling was more in helping women who end up... Um, who find that they're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder based on the birth. And so she helps them get through that aspect of life. So after the baby's born, when they're maybe grieving their single life or their life that was before and navigating those trains. So those are the only two doulas that I know of. So what's an artist doula? Well, actually an artist doula is something I made up. So that's probably why you haven't heard of it before, but it comes from that idea of a doula. So like you were describing, with the fact that we are giving birth to children, it's not just the process of actually giving birth that the doula only helps with. They help the mother or the parent reconcile or get prepared for that role of becoming the mother. Because the midwife helps with the actual birthing process, but the doula helps with the before, the during, the after. And now things that are being more specified with the postpartum and also the, the doula and as a regular title. So this is where this idea of the concept of the artist doula came from. Because I believe that all of us as human beings have the capacity to create. And in that process of creation, we kind of birth our creative identity. 
But sometimes that creative identity, or in general, that creative identity needs to be integrated into who we are as individuals. But when we've experienced trauma, like whether that be personal trauma, social, political, institutional, systemic, historical violence, or violence in general, or some sort of adversity, this reconciliation of this new identity, this creative identity that we have, with all of the other intersectional roles that we have in this life, are sometimes difficult to manage. And so we don't propagate that sabor that we have, that uniqueness. We don't put that to the forefront. It sort of stays in the background and sort of ends up being something that we wish we can do, but we don't end up doing it. So this idea of the artist doula is to help those people who've been through trauma or violence or adversity to navigate that process of integrating that new creative identity so that they can move forward in their life and be living with Sabor. So you shared that you experienced some trauma and it was almost trauma on top of trauma because your, your life as you knew it shifted and you had to pivot and re-identify yourself in these new roles. And you're doing that. And then probably one of the worst things that can happen to a person happened. And then you had to work through that again. So how did you use your art to help you work on your healing through that trauma? So that experience that I had of creativity helped me to do that shift and pivot. Because since I had that creative mind already part of who I am, it allowed me how to, or allowed me to be innovative, to shift the way that I was thinking and working in my life in general. But because it was a trauma on top of a trauma, and I didn't explain to you about other things that happened subsequently to that, that's a story for another day. Uh, it wasn't something that I just had to think about in a siloed form. Because a lot of times what we're doing these days is we're compartmentalizing who we are. We see this in the medical practice all the time, that you have a specialization in a particular medical practice to the point where sometimes certain people feel like they're not being treated as an entire individual, only that one part of their body is being treated. So for me, I needed to look at how I can be innovative to connect all of who I am as a mother, as a worker, as a professional, as an artist, as a friend, as a family member? How can I bring all of these things together holistically to tie it together so that I can continue to move forward so that my vision of my life became so, so clear that no matter what fear I had became irrelevant? Oh, that's so beautiful. So you created a clear vision for yourself. Can you describe what that vision looks like? That vision is a holistic vision of who I am, I suppose. I mean, I think the best way to explain it is that people come up to me all the time and they're like, Farah, you have so many different projects on the go. You're working with all different kinds of people, institutions and communities, and you're around the world talking to different people. How can you manage all these hats? And what I tell them is that I don't think about it as seeing a whole bunch of hats. I think about it as seeing it, I only have one head. And there's only one purpose that I have for why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's what keeps me going. And that's that vision that I have for all of us. So it's basically the fact that 
we have to monitor our expectations of who we are so that we are being reasonable for who we are at the moment and not just sort of succumb to what people have forced us to be because they think that we should be expected to be like this or like that because of our role in society. Do you get what I mean? So I'm hearing uh, constantly working on our self-awareness. So yeah, like getting in touch with us, our likes, our dislikes, our skills, our strengths, etc. And then having that at the forefront of our minds, of our being, so that when another person, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a community member, uh, it could be anybody, right? I mean, lots of people always have different different ideas of what we should be doing. So then we can have that self-worth and that knowledge at our core. So then when somebody comes up and hey, I've got this idea that would be great for you, or you need to do your work differently, or mom, I don't like the way you're saying that thing or whatever, so that we can basically stand in our power. That's what I'm hearing. Yes, and it's also to accept where we are now, because sometimes our power might be coming to us really strongly at one particular moment in time, but because of all of the other roles that we have in our life, it might negate where we are at this time. So this is where this idea of the cultural stripper came from. So you know that I wrote that I'm a cultural stripper because one of the things I do when I facilitate is I help to deconstruct who we are as individuals. So I use myself as an example. And what I do is I unmask some of these roles that either I have placed on myself as a second generation immigrant, as an Indigenous person from not someone from this territory, but from another territory, as a mom, as a professional, et cetera, et cetera to deconstruct all of those different cultures that we have, like all the intersectional roles that we have, and take those off, strip those off to find what that core is. And then that's how we can have a better understanding of who we are and what makes us us. And also it gives us the option of deciding, do we want to keep that off, whatever cultural layer we've stripped off of ourselves, Do we want to put it back on? Do we want to carry it with us? Do we want to keep that baggage in a way? Or do we want to discard that aspect of ourselves? So it's almost like revealing these layers of ourselves so that we can know how to put it back together to become a true whole. So the way that I see it is almost like a taco, um, that a taco is made up of a number of different parts and we can decide that we want to put in the taco and we know that sometimes tacos fall apart but we still love them anyway because they always taste good Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) uh how do you work with people in the cultural stripping like what does that look like when you're working with a group or an individual for that particular thing what i do is if i am facilitating a workshop the way that it comes forward is is that i will come with the biggest mass that I have. And I'll use visual modeling so that people can see what people mm, might perceive me to be, a, be about just by reading my bio, for example. And then for each of those layers, as I take them off, I'm kind of revealing an aspect of myself. And then I do an interactive, engaged workshop with them on that particular layer that I peeled off. Because for me, I don't want to impose Uh, an assumption on another person whom I'm working with. So that's why I use myself. 
So it's fine if everyone's laughing at me or laughing with me. That's okay. So then that way I can be respectful of the other people whom I'm working on. And I go through this process of revealing different layers of myself through clothing so that people can continue to workshop with me and at the same time have a visual, visceral experience of being with me and experiencing that stripping process. And depending on whom I'm working with, then we see how far I go with the stripping. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh what does the role of mother look like when, when you wear that role? For me, a mother is a model of whom I am going to be for my children, but also for other mothers who are out there. Because if we can work to bring a better example for all of the kids, whether they be female, male, transgendered, two-spirited, etc., anywhere in the LGBTQAI++ spectrum or beyond that, uh, we can help to change societies. I mean, right now, what we saw with the whole COVID situation, we know that normal of what we knew it to be will never exist again. We have the option now to take some of those things that we did not like in the way that we saw society and community structured and to change it to be something that we would like it to be for our children. So as a mother, it's a huge responsibility. And I also don't see that mother role only to be a role based on the female gender. So this is why I work with people who consider themselves to have feminine energy. Uh, so it doesn't really matter what your physical birth biographical uh, definition of what uh, a female is. If you consider yourself to have feminine energy, and there's some people who uh, define themselves as female, but not necessarily having feminine energy because it means something different to them. So those people who have that feminine energy, that feminine nurturing, caring spirit, these are the people whom I'm interested in working with. Oh, awesome. So I have so many questions. Uh, how, how do you work with people in general? So you've identified yourself to me in different conversations, like as a coach and some different work. So like, how do you work with people to help them get to their core? What are some of the different things that you do? You've mentioned workshops, you've mentioned, um, well, mostly we've, we've talked about workshops at this point. So what are some of the other things that you've done? Yeah, so that comes in different forms. Uh, I get invited to various conferences or community organizations, associations, etc., to public speak just so that I can give validity to some of these thoughts that people are thinking, because sometimes it's just nice to be inspired or motivated by somebody who's thinking the same thing as you. That's one way, definitely, like you mentioned, by facilitated workshops. And for those workshops that I run, they're always interactive. Because for me as an artist, I need to have that engagement. I'm not the type of person to just sit on my butt or stand in front of the room and talk in front of people. I like to see the reaction and I like to see that it's going to come some to something so that there's a momentum afterwards. But um, also people work with me in um, short-term and long-term programs. So these programs, they're coaching programs, but at the same time, those also are very integrative. So they're coaching programs with workshops, whether they be online or in space, in person, depending on if I'm in the city where they are. Uh, they're also connecting with media, so they're used different ways. So people can stay engaged on a daily basis and there be some accountability. And always there's a community of people for support. 
So if, for example, if anyone is struggling, it's not just me they can reach out to, but it's also the community who's involved in that I have uh, cultivated. You've listened to my podcast, so you know that I like to say that we're all better together. So that's a great example of, of how that would look. So uh, as an artist and as somebody who would like people to get more in touch with their values, what would a workshop like that look like? So I do this thing called identity mapping. And what we do is what I'm really interested in is um, finding new and creative ways so that people don't get bored of what their vision is. So the process that I use is based more in ethnography. So this is why it's a combination of ethnography, art, and also therapeutic skills mm-hmm. uh, or techniques, because um, depending on whom I'm working with, I take into account what potentially their life experiences are, or what some of their barriers have been from in the past, because uh, in certain cases they let me know or the organization lets me know, etc. some of the issues that people have gone through in particular. And then for each person, I try to find ways in which they themselves enjoy being part of their lives, in which ways that they are passionate, what ways that they have fun, what way that they keep their desire going, their purpose going. So to give a simple example, uh, I was asked as part of a working group exercise to do a vision board for people. And um, everybody was expected to come with their cardboard piece of paper and some postcards cut out and some inspirational quotes. And they had all of that prepared. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and um, the organization told me, you're supposed to be doing vision boards. So we had them prepare in advance. And then I realized, oh, man, like everybody's just following these norms of what they think they need to do in order to sustain their vision. And so this was an example of where I used a different approach, for example. Um, one woman she was not interested in a paper version at all. She would never look at it. She's always done vision boards. She'd done five of them and they've never been successful for her. So what we did instead, we found that for her, inspirational quotes worked really well. She got a little wallet and she put all of her inspirational quotes of what her personal vision is inside that wallet, almost like social capital, like the money that she uses for social development. And um, whenever she was out or whenever she needed to, she pulled out that value that she had inside of her wallet. There's another woman that I know, she was really interested in music. And so whenever she needed inspiration and she needed to be reminded of what her vision was, she would listen to music. So what we did is we made a playlist, like a mixtape of her personal vision, stuff that would get her motivated, stuff that would remind her of why she was doing it and why she was doing what she was doing with the audience that she was working with. And whenever she would get stuck or needed to know where she's going next in her structural design, she would listen to the music and go from there. There was another person I worked with and they uh, were going through a number of barriers coming out. And what they wanted to do is find a way (laughs) to keep their self-centered. And so what they did is that they created with me a personal altar. And their altar was their vision board. So they added things and they took away and it became almost like this ceremonial ritual for them to participate and engage with their vision on a daily basis because it became part of their practice. So this is how I use the arts and ethnography to bring people's personal 
uh, attachments, people's background, their experiences, what they're good at, what they're used to, into what they need to do for the future so that it's sustainable. Oh, that's great. Can you define for us what ethnography is? Ethnography in a very, very basic way would be the study of person self. So if you were to come up with a vision for the whole world, so if they've been shifted and disturbed and stripped and worked into their creativity, what would that world look like? Mm, That's a huge question. I think it goes back to what your purpose of your podcast is about us working together in community to find what our strengths are and not to feel shame for what our strengths are. And then to see how we fit together almost like a puzzle into helping other people. So not only are we helping each other around us in our piece of puzzle, but we're also giving strength and empowerment to ourselves because we know we're making a difference. And as we add more and more pieces, we get stronger and stronger and stronger. And we keep growing outward until it encompasses the whole world and not just the world itself. Self, but the atmosphere, everything above and below us, and as well as who knows what's out there in space that we consider that as well in the universe, whatever those powers are at be that we don't know, whether if you believe in a supreme being or if you believe in extraterrestrials, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that it's all connected together. Mm, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. So you are going to join me at an event I have coming up, and we have some plans where you will run a some workshops and uh, also be a panelist with other women. And then on the following day, we're going to dig into what did we decide? We're going to be working on cultures of respect, be more inclusive. I am so excited. This might sound kind of obvious between you and me, but I was wondering if um, you could give your take on why being more inclusive is important and why we would even choose that as something to look at. I think it's about being respectful. If we can be more inclusive, then we are actually promoting more justice and equality in the world. And if we can promote more justice and equality, that will help with that we connectedness. It will strengthen not only ourselves, but also our community because the diversity or the plurality of opinions and ideas and perspectives, ages, races, cultures, classes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of that will be taken into consideration. And of course, there are moments in time for when we should be exclusive in our thinking, that we should be putting things into uh, silos. There are moments in time for that. But if in general, we can be thinking with open-mindedness, that will allow for us to become more visible and knock off some of those expectations that we put on ourselves that keep us in that normative behavior that stops us from moving beyond colonization. And prevents us from being who we really are. Yeah, this has been great. Where can people find you? You can find me in LinkedIn, on Facebook, and Instagram, or else on my website. Or you can call me Anytime you'd like to, 514-919-2775. I'm open. And your website is faroffancy.com, correct? That's correct. That's great. And we'll have links to that and all of that in the show notes. So you can click away there too. I am so grateful for getting to know you and for you sharing your story on this and for joining us in future endeavors. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to the event that you're going to be having. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Balance Shared is curated by me, Michelle Lassley. Ezra Meredith is our producer. The instrumental music Grass by Silent Partner is from the YouTube Audio Library. If you've enjoyed today's episode, leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. If you've loved the messages of co-creating a better future and digging into ourselves, maybe you'd like to become a supporter. Email hello at michellelassley.com to get your sponsorship guide. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This is Michelle Lassley with Balance Shared, a space where I truly believe we are better together.